As we continue looking through the book of Jonah this week, um, we're going to read the rest of chapter 1, starting at verse 4 all the way through verse 17. This is on page 654 from the Bibles in the pews before you. So if you remember last week, we left off with Jonah hearing the word of God to go to Nineveh to preach his judgment to them for the purpose of repentance. And Jonah decides he's not having none of that. He goes down to Joppa, he gets on a boat, and he heads on a boat in the completely opposite direction. And we asked ourselves this past week to think on the areas where God might be calling us to step out in faith where we might have been tempted to run from God's call. And I bring that up because that's an important thing to think about, but also because it's going to lead directly into what we see in the rest of chapter 1 this morning. You see, it's important not just for our spiritual walk and discernment of God's will in our lives, but because we're going to see here the results of Jonah's running. Specifically, three things. We're going to see its consequences. We're going to see the irony of running from God. And finally, we're going to see the futility of running from God. And all of those things are going to come together and show us this ever-important fact that God's plan for redemption is not thwarted by our failures. So let's read together Jonah 1, verses 4 through 17, as we look at the consequences, the irony, and the futility of running from God. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. Such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us, and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running from God, away from the Lord, because he had already told them so. Now the sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault and this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for, making, for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. 
But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this text. We just ask that you would open our hearts, our minds to your truth this morning. May we see, indeed, the futility of running from your call in our lives. May we see in this text another opportunity for us to come to you, to know you deeper, and to trust you more. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So after reading this text, it's pretty clear that Jonah's attempt to flee from the presence of the Lord has not worked. And as a result, we again see the consequences, the irony, and the futility of running from God. Let's start in this text with the first, the consequences of running from God. As Jonah tries to flee from the great city of Nineveh, he immediately finds himself caught up in what the text calls a great storm. We read in verse 4 that the Lord sent or hurled a great wind towards them, which threatens to destroy their boat. And it's like when King Saul is sitting at his table and he hurls his spear at David or he hurls his spear at his son Jonathan out of anger. God here hurls a great storm at Jonah. This storm is so bad that these sailors who would have been expectant of storms, would have been accustomed to storms, used to these storms on the sea, were terrified and immediately realized that this was no ordinary storm. This was a storm like no other. The suddenness and fury of this storm was unlike anything they had ever seen. This is even clearer as their first step, as the text says, is not to start doing things that sailors would have done. Their first step is they immediately start crying out to every god they can possibly think of to save them. Then after crying to every god to save them, to make it stop, they start throwing their cargo overboard to try to lighten the ship. And this was no small task. We, we often think of it as a no-brainer, right? They're starting to sink, they throw stuff off, they get lighter, they're saved. But this is their livelihood, right? They, they are sailors. They went out on the sea with this cargo for their gain. And here we see that in the moment they were willing to lose their potential gain for the salvation of their lives and the lives of those around them. Unlike Jonah, who will selfishly fight for his gain at the expense of all those around him. This is exactly what the text says Jonah is doing. While the sailors are admirably and courageously praying and doing something about their current circumstance, Jonah has gone down to the inner part of the ship and has gone to sleep. This whole scene doesn't make any sense. If you've ever been on a ship before that was in rough seas, then you know that the best place and the most comforting place for you is on the deck, where you can hold on for dear life, where you can see what's going on, where you can anticipate the next wave, the the next crash, the next rocking of the ship. But instead, Jonah, who is an Israelite, who maybe goes to the Sea of Galilee every once in a while, but has never been on the Mediterranean Sea, in the midst of a great storm, goes down into the belly of the ship where you would have felt it the most, where everyone's getting seasick, and he goes to sleep. The sailors who were pros at the ocean were freaking out on deck, whereas an Israelite is in the belly of the ship. Not unlike where he's going to find himself at the end of this story. 
And as he's fast asleep, the captain finds him there in disbelief that anyone could possibly be sleeping at a time like this and says to him, Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we might not perish. And where have we heard this command to arise before? Here Jonah opens his eyes to the same words that God says to him in verse 2, only to see that these words to arise are now coming out of the mouth of a pagan captain. And what's worse is the thing that the captain was telling him to do, to call out to God that they might be saved, is exactly the thing that he could have and probably should have been doing at this time. Yet here he is, sleeping away in the inner part of the ship. One commentator puts it this way, It was not an evil conscience or despair occasioned by the threatening danger which induced him to lie down to sleep, nor was it his fearless composure in the midst of the dangers of the storm, but the careless self-security with which he had embarked on the ship to flee from God without considering that the hand of God could reach him even on the sea and punish him for his disobedience. Careless self-security. The sailors are doing everything they possibly can to save each other. And Jonah, just as he's done from the beginning, is thinking about himself. You see, Jonah, in his attempt to run from God's call in his life, decided that he would do it his way, hopping on a boat, heading out in the opposite direction. But like so many of the poor decisions that we make in life, he doesn't think about the potential consequences of his actions that might affect others around him or even himself. Our lives in Christ, as we just sung about, are meant to be a blessing to those around us as we pray to God for the redemption of this world. But when we try to run from God's call on our lives, it's not just us who are affected by the consequences, but everyone around us as well. Here, Jonah's attitude of self, selfish self-security causes him to think that his actions have no consequences on anyone else. But we see that his decision to avoid God's call on his life causes a great storm from God that affects not only his own attitude, but everyone around him. These sailors are in the same boat, quite literally, as he is. And his actions have the opportunity to help them or hurt them. So what is he going to do? Well, after some aggressive chiding from the captain, he finally heads up to the deck to try to see if he can help the situation. But God's not done waking Jonah up quite yet in this text. As we continue through the passage, we see, second, the irony of running from God. With Jonah now on deck, and with all other avenues of salvation seemingly exhausted, they cast lots to determine if, his, if this supernatural storm is a result of someone on the ship. Not surprisingly, they do this, and the lots fall on Jonah. But instead of angrily rushing him, you know, and throwing him overboard right off the bat because they now see whose fault it is, they calmly ask him his occupation to determine if it's an irreputable one, where he comes from, to see if they can drop him off so the storm will go away, and what his ethnicity is. And as we look at Jonah's response, we face the irony of his running from God in this text. After running from Beth Hapur to Joppa to get on a boat in order to avoid telling non-believers about God, and after hiding himself in the belly of the ship so he doesn't have to talk to anyone else, 
he finds himself standing before pagan sailors telling them about God. And notice how he answers them. They say, what is your job? What is your country? Who are your people? And he says, my people are. Right? He starts with his ethnicity. And you remember last week we saw that Jonah is, this, is a deep nationalist who had no interest in sharing the good news of God with those unlike him because he did not want to mess up the peace and prosperity that Israel was experiencing at the time. Right? Things are going really well. If we go and tell Assyria about this God, they just might come to repentance. I mean, he says that in chapter 4. He knows what God can do. They just might come to repentance, and then we have to share our blessings with them. He's a deep nationalist, right? He's a Hebrew. That's how he answers them. His identity is first and foremost in his, is in his ethnicity as a race, forgetting that his identity as part of God's people was meant to be a blessing and a light to other nations, not an end in itself. This shallow self-identity keeps him from understanding and being faithful to, his call, to God's call in his life. So he answers them, I am a Hebrew, which is the name that the Gentiles used uh, in reference to the Israelites, and I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And it says the men respond in a fear of great fear. I love it. A fear of great fear is the literal translation. They're terrified at this news for several reasons. First, this isn't just one of the little gods that they were just praying to on the deck. Right? This isn't Baal the sky god. This isn't the sea god. This isn't the god of storms. This is Yahweh, who Jonah says is the god of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. This is the creator of the universe. This is God of gods. If this was the one who Jonah worshipped and it is his fault that the storm has come, then they were in great trouble. But they're also afraid, the text says, because Jonah was fleeing this God. They no longer fear the storm itself, but they're actually terrified of the God who hurled the storm at them because of Jonah's disobedience. When they hear about the God who has sent this storm, they respond in a fear as a result of what they have come to know about God through Jonah's testimony. So as we get to verse 10, we see that the irony of running from God is that the sovereign God of the universe will not be thwarted by our disobedience. Through the mess that Jonah's disobedience caused, God still uses Jonah to preach to non-believers about Yahweh, the God of the universe. But this isn't the only place where God does something like this in Scripture. Right? We head back to Exodus 14, and in verse 17, with their backs up against the Red Sea, with Pharaoh's army pressing in, God tells Moses to turn around and go across the parted Red Sea and seals it with this caveat. He says, And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and through all his army, through his chariots and through his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. In that text, God uses the hardness of the Egyptian's heart to actually gain glory for himself so that the Israelites would know that he was God, but so that the Egyptians back in Egypt would also know that he is God. God ironically uses disobedience at times 
to bring Himself glory and to bring salvation to others. So as we see in this text, not only the consequences of running from God is that it doesn't just affect you, but affects all those around you, that the irony is He's still going to use you for His glory. He's still going to get glory even when you decide you want to do it your own way. Jonah, through the storm that results from his selfish attitude, finally begins to be faithful to God's cause. He tells these pagan sailors all about the God whom he serves and from whom he's now running. And the terrified men looking around at the storm that is getting worse and worse look to Jonah for salvation. And it is here that we see the final point of our text. The futility of running from God. What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us, they ask. Or better yet, I like to read it this way. What must we do to you to be saved? And after proclaiming the sovereignty of God to these sailors, it's as if he finally realizes for the first time in this story that his true identity has the potential to help or hurt others. And he finally starts thinking about others rather than just himself. This is my fault. Throw me overboard and it will all stop, he says. Or, what must you do to be saved? Accept my death as a substitution for God's wrath on this ship. I love it. Matthew Henry says, Jonah is herein a type of Christ, that he gives his life a ransom for many, but with this material difference, that the storm Jonah gave himself up to still was on his, of his own raising, but the storm which Christ gave him up to still was of our raising. This is one of the aspects that when we get into the Gospels and Jesus starts talking about the sign of Jonah, that he's trying to explain Yes, it, it refers to the three days that he spends in the tomb, just like the three days that Jonah's about to spend in the belly of the fish. But it's also a remembrance, a, a, you know, it's a reference back to Jonah's substitutionary death here as he offers himself willingly for the salvation, quite literally, of these sailors in this boat. But the sailors are not comfortable with this, right? Just talk to any non-believer today and say, you want all your problems to go away? Trust in someone else doing something for you. And they will say, I'm not conditioned to think like that, right? I'm conditioned to think if there's a problem in my life, I need to do something to take care of it. And we come to them with a word that says, there's a problem in your life, someone else is already taking care of it. You just need to trust in him. Here, these non-believers, these pagan sailors, are uncomfortable with the idea of throwing Jonah overboard for their own salvation. This man is a prophet of Yahweh, the Creator God overall. We can't possibly throw him overboard. So they row harder, they try to get away from the storm, only to realize that finding salvation outside of Jonah's substitutionary death was not going to happen. In this, we see that these pagan sailors actually care more about the life of one man, Jonah, than Jonah has shown for tens of thousands of lives of those who are in Nineveh who he's been running away from. Throughout this story, the irony of the text is that the pagan sailors are much better witnesses of who God is than Jonah has been throughout chapter 1. 
They're the ones who pray to God. They're the ones who are seeking what to do to be saved. They're the ones who speak calmly and rationally. They're the ones who even here don't want to have, see people die, but would rather do something else. So they cry out, Please, Yahweh, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Yahweh, have done as you pleased. Trusting that this was in fact the only way, they pray to God that He would not hold them accountable for throwing Jonah in. And instead of dying alongside, with, of, uh, dying alongside of Jonah, His sacrifice on their behalf becomes their salvation, bringing peace and order once again to the sea. And get this, with the storm now over, the text says they experience greater fear than they did back in verse 5 when the storm began. They now experience the true reverent fear of the Lord, knowing that He is indeed who Jonah says He is. And as a result, the text says they offer sacrifices, they offer vows to Him. They use the covenantal name, the personal name of God, Yahweh, just like the Israelites would have. Because they now understand who this God is, what He's capable of, and what they need to do in order to have faith in Him. Again, it should be clear to see in this text what the futility is of running from God's will. Jonah sets out to avoid talking about God's great mercy to those outside of Israel. And here he is, standing on a boat of non-believers, being used as an object lesson to bring them to a greater understanding of the mercy and grace of the Lord. Just like the irony that God will still be glorified even when we try to run from His call, we see here the futility of running in that we can never truly run away from God's purposes on our lives. When we try to avoid God's call, it may end up getting us thrown off the side of a ship instead of standing on dry land preaching the good news. But God will still receive the glory due His name in the process. The futility of running from God, in my opinion, is summed up well by C.S. Lewis in this quote from The Pilgrim's Regress. That likens, it to being, that likens it to being a bird in the cage. Right? He says this. He says, Beating my wings always within your cage, I flutter but not out. It's poetic language. I'm going to read it again. Beating my wings always within your cage. Right? I'm trying to get out. I'm trying to escape your will. I flutter but not out. In other words, God has given us all the free will to choose whether or not we will listen to the Spirit's direction for our lives, but even though we may cause a mess around us by choosing to run, we will still find ourselves within the cage of God's sovereign plan with Him receiving all the glory due His name. As we see in this text, the futility of running from the omnipresent and sovereign God is that we can never truly run from the omnipresent and sovereign God of this universe. It's like Jen read for us out of Psalm 139 this morning. 139? 119. It was 139, sorry. 139. Where can I go to escape your presence? Right? Where can I flee from your spirit? If I go high, if I go low, if I go east, if I go west, we can't escape God no matter how hard we try to run from His will. So last week, 
We saw the temptation to run from God when he calls us to step out in faith and do something uncomfortable. And this week, we've seen the consequences, the irony, and the futility of choosing to run from God in those situations. And this all leads to a word of great hope for us this morning. Specifically, God's plan of redemption is not thwarted by our failures. This is obviously a great word of encouragement for broken people like you and I who often find ourselves running from God instead of listening to His will. But let me also use it as a word of warning as we conclude this morning. Because it will be really easy to leave today's word and say, I can do whatever I want. God will still get the glory and God will still use me. It just might be in a different way, but God will still use me. But although God can still use us, even when we are slow to respond to his call, this is obviously not how he wants to use us in this world. The fruit of our life of faith is seen as we delight in being used by God for his glory to reach the ends of the earth. And I've actually been thinking a lot about this lately. Uh, Zach Marks and I have been reading John White's book, Daring to Draw Near. Many of you have read that book. It's a great book on prayer. And in chapter 2, he talks about Jacob. And his point in talking about Jacob is that from the moment of Jacob's birth, God promised to bless Jacob, right? From the moment he was born, God said, out of, from the second, we'll rule over the first. Right? He was going to be blessed. He was going to receive this inheritance. He was going to receive the birthright. He was going to do all these things. He was going to use them to be a blessing to the nations. But instead of waiting for God's timing, and instead of waiting for God to give him those blessings, he spends his entire life grabbing them. He spends his entire life doing it his way. Here's an opportunity to get the birthright. I'm going to get the birthright. Here's an opportunity to get my father's blessing. I'm going to get my father's blessing. Here's an opportunity to get the wife that I want. I'm going to do it. And then when I'm tricked, I'm going to do it again. Here's an opportunity to take extra flock with me as I leave. Here's an opportunity. So the whole, whole life is spent trying to do it his own way. Right? God wanted to give him all these blessings, and he said, that's awesome. I'm going to do it my own way. And White says this in the book. In these ways, he struggled half his life to gain for himself the things God had already planned to give him anyway. In the end, he gained exactly what God had promised, but no more. Tragically, he had missed in the struggle the peace and fellowship with God he might otherwise have enjoyed. God wanted him to have the inheritance plus peace and fellowship with himself. Instead, Jacob had 21 years of anxiety. And this is the point I want to make as I, as I point out the fact that God's plan of redemption is not thwarted by our failures. It's obviously a great word of encouragement that even when we mess up, God will still get glory, that God can still use us, that he's given us second chances, third chances, a hundred chances. But we need to remember that the blessings that God wants to give us are perfect in his time when we trust in him, when we step out in faith, when we listen to his call. If we decide to run the other direction, if we decide to try to do it all on our own, to try to gain the blessings for ourselves, we'll find that we may still be blessed in the end, but we'll have done so through anxiety, through stress, through storms that affect others around us, through 21 years of waiting, 
instead of the way that God wants us when he says, go, preach my word, go, start this ministry, go, start a new job, whatever it is. Jonah was still used to share the message of God with non-believers, but in the process, he endured the great storm, and as we will see next week, three days in the belly of the fish. And although he begins to do the right things in this text, we actually see that he's yet to really repent and decide that he will, in fact, finally go listen to God's call to go to Nineveh. He's kind of like in the situation, things are going bad, he sees he has an opportunity to make things right, so he does it. He still hasn't quite figured it out yet. And let's not fall into this trap, but instead, let's repent of our failures to listen to God and the temptation to run. All the while, starting a new chapter in our lives marked by remarkable faith and new adventures of risk and faithfulness as we go to where God is calling each one of us to go. Because we can get there the easy way, through God's word and through his will, or we can get there as God uses us through great storms and having to go through giant fish. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for this word of encouragement and the fact that you do use us even when we're slow to respond, that you can use us even when we run the opposite direction, just as you did here in our text this morning. We thank you that you did use Jonah in this way, Lord, and that even as he tried to run from telling the good news to Nineveh, he ends up getting to tell the good news to even more people. Lord, how ironic and futile it is to run from your will. May we this morning sit here and as we pray, Lord, ask what it is that you are calling us to do. And may we step out in faith. May we go in that direction no matter how difficult, no matter how uncomfortable, no matter the fact that we can't see the end, no matter we don't know if there's a rock there to step on next, whether or not we can see what's before us, Lord, we know that you are our foundation, that you are our rock, that you are the one in whom we trust and who has never led us astray. May we lean on you more today than we ever have. And may we trust you into the future. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and continue to worship the God who is our strength and our foundation. Singing